Wake up, boy. Wake up. It's medication time. half, go back and listen two podcasts ago to Heroin Part 1, where we discuss its creation, as well as its distribution across the world, and its short-lived period of a miracle drug and the coming epidemic that it brought for all us hardcore opiate addicts in the world. I say us because it is endemic to this race, humans, if it's not heroin we're talking about, it'll be opium or cocaine or the most abused drug, alcohol. They've been around since time out of mind, and I don't think we're going to be solving any epidemics tonight. But what we can do is raise awareness and look at the problem that exists and why we see fluctuations in one drug over another. Remember, you can find us at TraumedyPodcast.com or Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Go ahead and type it in. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your caregivers, tell your patients. It's all for the good of everyone. And I just like to think that I'm out there doing a little bit something for everyone else. Aside from saving lives, no big deal. All right, so where are we with this? Now, how's everyone doing out there? Are you... Are you worried about this? And on a very serious note, if you have some issues maybe with drugs or alcohol abuse or you do have friends or family that may have issues, I'd like you to direct them or you yourself call 1-800-662-HELP. That is a drug and alcohol helpline. I've spoken with them there and they said, please, if you could, send as many people our way and we'll do whatever we can to help them. That's 1-800-662-4357. Now I'd like to call upon the muse, Dan Carlin, to help me sing this song as truthfully and as eloquently as possible, because through him, with him, and in him, all things flow. Thank you again. If you don't know who I'm speaking about, it's Dan Carlin, who's a historian and does the podcasts Hardcore History as well as Common Sense. And I find that the more I do more of a narrative, solo, historical podcast, the more I start to not only speak in his timbre, but uh, also have his same pauses and everything. So I'm going to start off here by saying I think I'm stealing everything that he does, literally, uh, if not word for word, then inflection for inflection. So 
<clears throat> I thank you for putting those out there and for giving me the inspiration. And hopefully I can bring you something that is that poignant or at least half that interesting. Because I do find this stuff really interesting. And I think I've been trying to figure out, you know, what the reasons behind why I started a heroin two-part episode and, and the, the allure of it and why, as I said in the last one, it's, it's mind-blowing to me that at this time in history, and in, in knowledge of what this drug can do to somebody detrimentally and indeed um, fatally, there's still a rise in this drug. And you see these epidemics as a wave kind of, you know, rising and cresting and falling and only falling for a couple of different reasons. One of the other reasons is usually another drug comes into play. And then... After all of the fallout and all of the rehabilitation and all of the cautionary tales and indeed the fatalities wash ashore and they're cleaned up, you see another wave of this epidemic start to hit the oceans of mankind. And I don't really know how to stop it. I don't know if there is. If there's always suffering, either physical or mental, if there's always hardships, and if there are, there's a need and a curiosity towards something, people will try it. And it seems to be that heroin falls out of fashion, and then it comes back in a, in a big way, first kind of whispering and secretly, and then it becomes cool again to kind of try it. And then you get these epidemics. It's almost... <clears throat> There's no way to get out of it. You're always going to have this eddying of addicts in the oceans, you know, where the tide pools don't move anywhere. They just go in circles. And particularly if you're not in a very good socioeconomic standing, uh, you, you float close to those eddies. And with any luck, you can clear those and kind of swim away, or you may get caught in them for one or two cycles. But really, if you don't get out, you're more or less doomed. Have you ever heard of the horse latitudes on, on Earth? There are these areas on the oceans where the clipper ships, the, the wind-carried ships, would get stuck. They would get bogged down and stay in these, little, these latitudes where they would just circle or just not move whatsoever. And in order to get out of it, they'd have to jettison all the excess weight and usually livestock went overboard first the cows and the horses and uh, fittingly so there's a door song called horse latitudes and i only say that because uh heroin was the downfall of jim morrison of course horse is the nickname for heroin and and all i can say in this is before i get down into some of this which is is going to be a bit sad, and it's also going to be a bit curious. Um, the best thing we can do is be looking to the horizon to find new and better ways to first stop people from trying it, but also, more importantly, have some kind of programs established to treat people that do find themselves in the clutches of heroin and drug addiction. So much was the case 
1908 when Teddy Roosevelt was analyzing the use of heroin in United States society. And remember, this is a period after the war, about 50, 56 years after the war, or even 46 years, rather, after the Civil War. Heroin had been introduced mostly by the Bayer Aspirin Company, used and touted as a miracle drug. It was treating things like coughs and respiratory illness. And remember, think about the huge epidemic of consumption or tuberculosis at that time. It was being used for minor aches and pains. It was even being used for addicts of morphine that were trying to kick the drug. And so they thought because of its more potent and shorter acting half-life, heroin was the answer to the morphine epidemic. Heroin will find its way into society for a number of reasons. And because of this, you see Roosevelt talking to a doctor from Ohio, Dr. Hamilton Wright, and asking him to study this epidemic and see what could be done about it. Wright says, quote, Americans have become the greatest drug fiends in the world. And in most cases, when you have a power, when you have a cloud and you have an influence, that influence is going to reach the world. And we have some very interesting things happening in America at this time. First of all, we have what I'm going to point out is it seems three big factors which cause an increase in drug use and heroin use, particularly now. You have a large influx of different cultures bringing in their cultures, their societies. Uh, in this case, if we're talking about heroin, initially it was coming in from Eastern Europe, from Turkey, from Afghanistan, from Babylon, you know, uh, Iran. That was where it was first introduced or, or opium was first created there. And and then it was spread across for, for in a couple different ways, either by regular travelers and, again, by large governments. If you haven't studied the opium war, I would go back and take a look at Britain's contribution to introducing opium and, of course, then heroin to China. And you see these two large meccas for heroin, Eastern Europe and the Middle East, as well as China. And as these immigrants begin to come on shore at the port cities at New York, uh, San Francisco, you see it in New Orleans, uh, and then later as you get riverboat transportation and train transportation up into St. Louis, into Chicago. And as these different groups come across, they're bringing with them their cultures as well as their chemicals. So where, if you're a brand new Turkish immigrant or Chinese immigrant, where are you going to settle in the new world? You're not going to have enough money to go live up on Park Avenue. So where you go is going to be wherever they're going to allow you to live and wherever you can afford to just rent and eke out an eager existence. Don, not, you know, not to mention to, to buy a home. So we see new immigrants showing up and having to live in the lower socioeconomic areas of these cities, in ghettos, um, in the slums, in the hoods, where life is not good. Uh, if you think about the South, 
This is just after slavery, and there's really not much different to an African-American's life at this point, pre versus post-slavery. They are still working in fields, and later as these plantations are being shut down, and the North is coming down into the South as carpetbaggers, you remember this from your stories, carpetbaggers were Northerners that came into the South, investing money, creating factories. You see that these agricultural minorities and Southern uh, Scotch or English wasp that were living in those areas gradually lose their farmlands in place of industrial turbined factories. And you can imagine the kind of dehumanization that occurs when this is going on before you'd get up and, yeah, you'd work hard, stressful hours as you got up at the crack of dawn and tended to the fields. And, you know, you were you were working under someone, but really everyone was working under under God's earth where you had certain cycles dictated by the seasons on how to earn your living. This is the time we plant. This is the time that we sow. This is the time that we reap. And now as the factory condition starts to insinuate itself into not just the South, but into the industrial revolutionized new world here, that regular cycle begins to disappear in favor of waking up at the sound of the factory whistle, working 12 to 14 hours really not much more than a cog in the gears. You're standing by a machine and you're you're pulling a lever on a stamp press. You're almost you're you're a human cog. And you can imagine waking up in the middle of the night, getting to work, pulling one movement, you know, cranking a quarter turn on one wrench for twelve hours, and then the factory bell whistle goes off or whistles, you pack up your gear and you go home, smelling like soot and demoralized and distraught and exhausted. Not quite the ideal landscape that we want anyone to have. And because of this, these factory workers, the proletariat really, that were living in these cities, when the factories arrived, this was their only means of income. So you see that the lower income people end up having these excruciatingly tough and monotonous lives. And there's really no out. If you can't afford to get lunch, how are you going to afford a train or a steam ship ticket away from that neighborhood? And if you do, where are you moving to? So, of course, there's always another way out. Escape in the mind. Now, there are other means of getting out for sure. And one that had always appealed to me <clears throat> as a, from the time that I was a child and I first really strung a guitar chord and realized how much it spoke to me. You could travel as a musician. And I'm going to bring it up here because to me, I, I can always relate this to the musician's mindset and the fact that you know you have a talent for something. And that talent might just be the way out. And so, particularly in this time period, you start to see that music becomes 
a way out for a lot of minority groups. They can leave their cities behind. That neighborhood can be a memory for at least a couple weeks to a few months as you do the music circuit across the U.S. So all of these, first it was called Creole music or, or call and answer slave music, which uh, then basically became blues and blues and Creole created jazz and also the Appalachian music. These musicians begin to find their way out of their situations by traveling, by getting into a music circuit and just going from town to town, from bar to bar, from hotel to hotel, playing music. But as they're traveling, they need to have an audience. You couldn't just pull into town being a Negro man and with a guitar and saying, well, I'd like to go play at the Hilton. I don't know if they had Hiltons back then, probably not. But you know that you couldn't walk into the Traveler's Rest Saloon and just say, Howdy, love to play a couple songs tonight. It could be dangerous, to say the least. But there were these little, almost like the California missions, there are these little beacons of safe zones that begin to sprout up across the U.S. where a musician can go and find a night's or maybe a week's worth of work and be safe, more or less. And then what you start to see is this other, this other factor that seems to be necessary in order for drugs to promulgate society. You start to see a willing audience of people that are interested in the culture and want to experience it almost to show people how progressive they are, how they're willing to take in the Negro experience or the Italian experience by going to the, you know, little Italy and, and actually eating authentic Italian food or going to the cotton club. And yes, it's in the, it's in the black part of town, but we're progressive white people and we don't judge. So we're going to go to these areas and immerse ourselves in the culture as we can is almost from a top down. We're, we're now reviewing this, but we're cool. We'll put the hats on and so forth. And you start to see that this becomes kind of it, not just the music, but the lifestyle of a blues musician is couture. It's in vogue. And as the music starts to show and hint at drugs, and like I said, the word hip, comes from the fact that in the opium dens, as you laid on cots around a communal fire, you would lean over on your hip and light your opium pipe. All of these people that are telling each other, hey, I'm hip, I'm willing to try this, begin to listen to the music and they hear about old man opium or they're hearing about heroin. And they start to not just listen to the music, but experience it through drug tinted eyes and mind, trying a bit of the reefer, trying the, the, the grass, the, the, the heroin, the morphine, the cocaine. And in this way, you see that it then starts to jump from different classes of different societies, of different cultures, of different ethnic groups, because of the willingness to put aside any kind of differences and almost try to embrace everything good and bad. And with that, 
whichever culture has more pull, then that's going to spread that information across the country and across the world. In other words, if you're talking about this drug and you're trying it and you're telling it to different social circles and this begins to get reported in newspapers, that's going to be able to be read and distributed across the country, across the globe. And not just that, but as this music is literally becoming recorded, you have the songs that talk about opium and heroin being pressed into vinyl and being shipped across the world. And so the act of music production alone starts telling people about drug use and the fact that you can find these speakeasies where everything, anything goes. And then the last thing that you see is this usually occurs after a large war. In the case of the late 1800s, we're dealing with the fall, the fallout of the Civil War, where you see a country in dire straits. And the people returning that are indeed alive, many of them are maimed, they're in chronic pain, and they need some kind of chemical relief. Even those that do not have chronic physical pain have just been to such a large-scale decimation of human life that they are scarred indefinitely. And so, more for mental respite, they turn to drugs, be it mostly alcohol, morphine, heroin. And as this continues, we see that morphine becomes more regulated in the late 1800s but heroin is being introduced more as a miracle drug, and the abundance of it is everywhere. Uh, women uh, could buy laudanum, or I just say that because most housewives at this time were the ones doing the shopping. Laudanum was sold over the counter. It was an alcohol and, a, and an opiate mix, and it was used to treat headaches and menses. And uh, You were seeing heroin cough drops advertised for children with respiratory illnesses. Heroin was everywhere. And if you needed it, especially if you were trying to kick your serious morphine habit, you could get it. And so where this demand arrives, the supply of heroin will necessitarily, necessitate, what's the word? Necessarily increase. <laughs> it's going to go up and you're going to find ways to get it. And so when Roosevelt's looking at this situation, his first reaction is, let's stamp it out. We stop it now, find out what is going on, and shut it down. I mentioned before that the uh, Hague Opium Convention attempted to regulate it first, and I said that this was during World War I. I, I take that back. I apologize. This, uh, the convention was actually in 1912, and World War I began in 1914. But we have an interesting thing happening at the turn of the century. As I mentioned, we're talking about industrialized worlds where we're finding that we become so interdependent on other countries now that we have created a series of treaties, of, of, of sanctions with other countries in order to get our global economy working for the first time. 
In fact, there were a lot of uh, writers and, and, and political scientists at this point that said in the early 1900s, there's no chance of a world war just due to the necessity of each country working together in order to, and the in, in, interdependence that we have of one another, that a world war would just show global economic collapse. We know that's not the case. In fact, the next two wars coming up that we're going to be experiencing are catastrophically, exponentially increased in damage and in cultural destruction. But nevertheless, in 1912, because of this interdependent global economy, we're trying to stamp it out in every country immediately because what we're also seeing is that there's an industrialized supply of heroin showing up on the mainland USA, and we have to shut this down. So in the uh, Hague Opium Convention, they attempt to have each country monitor the amount of heroin that they are producing and distributing, basically turning it into a Schedule One drug. And again, the, this and what happens in this one is first... Each country is saying, well, I need to produce X amount of heroin because these are the countries that are buying from me. Smaller countries, like, say, Algeria says, I still need to create enough, but they're saying you don't get to produce as much heroin as, say, Turkey does because you're not distributing, you're not supplying as many countries. However, they say this is the amount that I'm going to make and this is the amount that I will distribute and we will pay close attention to how much all of that is being regulated. So we see an attempt here, but what really ends up happening is that they keep on producing illegally or legally and only showing on paper that X amount was synthesized and sold off. When in fact there may be some that's making it out the back door some that's being put in containers that say aspirin, and those are being sold. And so again in 1925, they try and further lay out measures to make a uniform regulatory process for all countries to follow, basically redoubling their efforts to make this a Schedule One drug and finding um, other measures to have safeguards for accountability of drug production drug distribution, and accountability of that drug, say heroin, across country lines. We still have problems with this stuff today, where we have computerized stockyards. I couldn't imagine what it's like when you could literally sail in a ship on any shore and unload 16 tons of heroin. <laughs> it's just an insane amount of control at that time, although a valiant effort. It doesn't work out. And so cut to the, the, the tattered remains of, of World War I society. After we've come back and we've lost how many millions of soldiers and civilians. Um, when I talk about the Civil War and you've seen pictures of that, and then you see what trench warfare can do to human beings. Um, when you talk about industrialization, this is industrialization of death and the way that they were able to use technology to destroy mankind. 
I don't know why I keep saying they. It's us. It's the way that we are able to create statistics out of tragedy. I think Stalin said, what was it, 12,000 people that are killed is a tragedy. Uh, Two million, 21 or 2 million people that are killed is a statistic. You cease even being able to fathom the kind of death and carnage that occurs. And those returning veterans had seen what I believe hell would look like and smell like. And the fact that you can never escape hell, I think is exemplified by those shell-shocked veterans that had to come back. And of course, yes, they get back to their normal lives here, but what life? What is this in comparison to what they saw over there? And why is this real as compared to watching, you know, 7,000 people die in one morning? So they never quite were able to escape that. Nevertheless, they get back here. And because we in America didn't join as soon in the war... We didn't lose as many people. And obviously, because it was not fought here, we remained socially unscathed and industrially pretty safe. And because of that, we saw that while Europe starts to reel from the effects of World War I, we start to immobilize and, and industrialize. And we see a boom period in the 20s, the roaring 20s, where people from Europe, are now getting our information, our technology, our culture. In fact, people are now migrating more than ever to come to the United States in order to have some hope, just to escape physically where they, what their ruined neighborhoods and cities look like, just to have some kind of change and chance. And so we get another influx of, of immigration. And with it again... We have this kind of global acceptance of whatever this is, whatever American is, is good. Let's, let's try, let's do, let's, I mean, obviously they're doing it right because they're, they're succeeding when all of us are sitting in this gigantic economic depression. So what is it about them? And we start to ask ourselves that same thing. What is it? What, what makes us so great? Well, let's try a little bit of this and that and this race and as as great as that is, in fact, I think that's one of the most important reasons why we have succeeded so well is that we, we don't quite know what we have until it starts to work. And then we, we look back and we start to analyze and we try, we try to accept what, uh, what things are working well and adapt with those and jettison the old culture, the old ways, because that's what got us in trouble. The new stuff is working. Let's ditch the archaic and let's go with the the new and the and the hip and so with this economic increase here we see that uh we get a change in in cultures we get a little bit of an opening for musicians coming out that are you know attracting other cultures into the inner cities to show them why the music, why this, why this culture is, is, is doing so well, why it's in a renaissance. And as we're studying this and they're doing this, they start to take part again in opium and in, in, in alcohol and in 
heroin. Now remember, this is during prohibition. Okay? Just at this point, America goes into illegalizing alcohol. And it has the adverse effect. Rather than stamping out, as I keep saying, the want for alcohol and drugs, which have always been illegal, it just puts it underground. And as the government attempts to gain authority over drug use, federalizing control over it, the unexpected result is the black hand, the the black market, the mafia, actually gains power because they start to control alcohol and drugs imported into the United States. And so really, this is when we start to see the gangsters coming up and gaining power. Remember in your, remember, recall your godfather, ladies and gentlemen, when uh, Tom Hague's talking to, he's talking to Don Corleone about Sir Lotso the Turk, because Turk, the Turk's bringing in all the heroin from Turkey. Because all of these distributors out there that have been making it and stashing away certain amounts of it un documented amounts they need to get that in here and use it to create revenue and of course to get it to people that are going to use so we see that the the illegalization of this drug just like with the with the Hague opium convention and then later on with the geneva convention of 1925 the league of nations the more they try and regulate it the more it gives power to the illegal factories and the ones that control those, be it the mafia um, or larger companies out there. So, you know, there's a very real thing here where people say, well, it's a government, it's a, it's a conspiracy. You know, the government's actually filtering this stuff in. Well, in many ways, it did start out like that. And not just with the U.S. as the government, but those foreign countries are trying to find a place for their product. And they found it through filtering it within the mafia. Another really interesting thing occurs here. You realize back in the, you know, the, the pastoral days of, of society, most pubs, most bars, women would stay out of. Uh, and it was a place for men to go drink. And if you showed up in that place as a woman, you were considered rough and, you know, unrefined and you were easy and all the negative connotations that come along with that. But usually, as time progressed and in small neighborhoods and, you you know, it wasn't such a regulated thing, uh, what they would usually do is they'd have the bar and they'd have kind of an entryway, like a parlor in the beginning. It would be like a coat room. And they would set up benches in there and they'd set up a counter. And then you'd go through another door into the, the, the public uh, room proper, right, where the bar tabletop and everything is but there was a window there and you could as if you were a woman you could be in the entryway or in that little parlor and go and knock on that window and the bartender would pass you over some sherry or some wine or um, cider or whatever you know whatever they were drinking whatever they had available in that town and so yes it was it was considered uh, uncouth for women to drink but yes they did drink under a certain you know allowable cultural um, caveat, right? Like a, a you know, a, a, a loophole. And, and now we get prohibition where it becomes illegal for everyone to drink 
So what happens now? Well, all these women that were saying, hey, well, I used to go and sit in there. Well, you're not allowed to drink, so I'm not allowed to drink either. So who cares? I'm coming into the bar with you. So they were all drinking illegally. Why does it matter if it's a man or a woman doing it? Which makes a lot of sense. So now you see that rise in that flapper generation, kind of these audacious women, you know, empowered groups that uh, made some, they made a lot of headway because uh, they stepped up when, and they made that, that point and, and started to um, put themselves within male society for better or for worse. Because what you see happening here is because alcohol is not gender specific, you see a giant rise in alcoholics that are females. And as well, in these places where the music is flowing, as well as the heroin, you see a huge rise in the use and abuse of female addicts. So even by shutting down alcohol and putting regulations on heroin in hopes to stop it inside its cities, what ends up happening is it now infects an entirely different group of people. And now everyone is susceptible to this drug and everyone is susceptible to this kind of lifestyle. And when you're going out to the cotton club and you're listening to music like this, well, what the heck's going to stop you? You got all night while you're there and we're back from the war. So live it up. Forget your troubles. And that persists. We see that that culture begins to infiltrate the entire world, the United States. And because we get mass production of music, we have mass transportation, trains are everywhere. Anyone can travel from city to city at an affordable price. And with it, they can bring their drugs. And now, just in those port cities that would be getting the imported, imported, excuse me, heroin, it's being brought into not just certain cities, but areas in every city. The big cities first, and then the rural areas. And then really where it takes off, as always, is lower economic areas where they don't have the ability to escape. They do feel some oppression. And this is a way to get rid of that mindset. Hopefully, hopefully, just temporarily. But as you know, heroin addiction doesn't sound like it's ever been something that is a temporary fix. In fact, in fact, people have said, you know, there are two lives that I've led. One was everything up until I tried heroin for the first time. And then it's been everything since. And this stuff terrifies me. And yet... You see, at this point, maybe because it was new and introduced to these cities and these places, and, and people really didn't know the horrors of it yet, they're willing to try it. In fact, people are saying, hey, it's what's being touted as a cure for morphine. It's got to be better than morphine. And they take it, and it's better than morphine. And yet, they haven't seen the other side. They haven't seen the wave recede in the bodies on the shore yet. They haven't realized that if you feel destitute now living in a shotgun shack where you may find yourself you know uh 
behind the wheel of a small automobile, right? They haven't seen what happens to the person who ends up selling that off, selling their cars, selling their homes, selling their bodies just to have the heroin. And as we start to move forward from the 1920s, and really by that 1929 stock market fall, you're going to see that the world starts to see the other side of tragedy and addiction. Uh, the Great Depression was bad. I know that much. Uh... I don't claim to be a, an economic analysis. Uh, I don't even know how to say the words. What am I trying to say? An economic analyst? I don't know. I, all I know from it is what I remembered from elementary school and high school and then, you know, listening to a couple of different audio books of the time and reading a few books. But we know it was mostly caused to uh, issues with uh, financing, uh, credit issues, uh, the fact that people were buying without any kind of standardized or or actual hard cold cash, uh, particularly banks who were lending out to places and people, and they had no actual funds to back up all of those loans. And so um, if you want to learn about the Great Depression, please go back and, and find information on it. It's not going to be this podcast. But uh, I think I could bear to learn a little bit more about it. But what you end up seeing, and it's not like we haven't seen this recently, but when the banks start to collapse, the country starts to collapse. And when the leading country or one of the leading up-and-coming countries collapses, it then starts to drag every other country down because we're the weak link in the chain because we're the slow cow in the herd and we're going to be ravaged by the lion now in the 30s the great depression sweeps across america right destroys what infrastructure we had set up how beautiful and and how how mechanized it was becoming once this depression bankrupts, indeed banks, and then later con companies or corporations, it all trickles down to that worker who's from the inner city, that one that has sacrificed and, and abandoned his or her life as the farmer, uh, as the autonomous person that would be able to build their own home grow their own food and self-sustain themselves has now become victim to the lion, the wolf at the door. He no longer has those skills. In fact, those, those abilities to do that in your hometown have disappeared because now it's just factories. Now all you do is, well, I don't build the house. I just build the door frames of the house, right? I used to have a plantation here, but I sold it to a cotton factory. And now I have no home and no land to grow my goods and to feed my family. The Dust Bowl occurs where that was our nation's garden. And now because of over farming and storms, but mostly over farming without replenishing the soils, 
the earth is no good any longer. The migrant workers that were working that now are migrating to all points of the U.S. compass, mostly heading west with hopes that they can work somewhere in the in California in the valley. Um, but they are now destitute. And you want to think about having those endemic socially in equal situations in inner cities and in small pockets of the city. Think about it now. It's shot across the entire country. So now when everyone was feeling that social malaise and, and, and dire straits and just maybe in a small pocket in East St. Louis, now it's the Eastern seaboard, right? And so the need for this drug starts to gain some demand. Alcohol becomes legal again. Now, let's just not take that away. And let's allow for some heroin to come back into the scene. And with it, and by what I mean by that is they're not regulating this. The city, the country has bigger fish to fry. They're trying to get a hold of this complete economic collapse. And so regulations over drugs and alcohol kind of become side note while they deal with the big steps. Uh, you see a lot of, again, travel of these people, of, of people that are destitute, trying to find a way out or trying to find a job anywhere. So migration, migrant workers are common. If you're Let's say a farmer or you're a steel factory worker. You are traveling anywhere you can on freight trains. You're hopping on the trains or hitchhiking, trying to find some place to live, some place to work. If you have an affinity for drug and alcohol, you're also going to travel with that drug and alcohol just to keep your head straight as you move forward. And it's something interesting to think about. It's this drug initially gains popularity with a lower group of people that are in a suffering situation. They're using it to maintain sanity in some way. Uh, and then what you see on the other side is this affluent culture coming to it. And like I said, a top down analysis and saying, well, I'm guessing that this music is, uh, it's got to be indelibly tied to this drug. So let's try the drug and the drug is going to show us how to make the music. It's backwards. You should be looking at the fact that their lives have been terrible ever since then. And all of that drive and that genius comes from the fact that they've had to keep rising to the occasion to not die, to not get pulled into that tidal wave of destitute life and just a little of that drug helps them to be clear enough to play the music to sing the genius that they have inside them inherently already so it's such a disservice for a you know a cultural group of progressives to say this is cool this is how they got it it was from the drug let's try that and also we'll now get your culture wrong it's the other way around you give us, you give them your money, you spend a few lifetimes in the gutter, and then you see where your music thrives from. And by the way, that's the way every great art form has always started. It always starts from destitute living and somebody making it out.
And in this case, there's really no making it out in the United States in the 30s. You are stuck. You are bound. And there's really nothing else you can do. Now, escapist, this is interesting to me. I always find this crazy. And you see an increase in nightclubs during this time period. You see an increase in church dances, in social functions, uh, in movie theater attendance. Movie theaters were a lot cheaper than going to the opera or the theater, right? So you could go into these theater complexes and spend three or four hours out of your week of, 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 of terrible tragedy and just be kind of, uh, you know, uh, what's the, spirited away into another world for a while. And just like that, you'll see the use of drugs trying to do the same thing, mentally spiriting these people away into another place if just for a few hours a week. And it's going to continue this way throughout the 30s. And there's, there's, there's zero plans for helping anyone who is addicted to any drugs. There's no government outreach for this. The government has their hands full just trying to find a way to employ the country, not deal with the ones that are falling off because of drug addictions. And we get more, we, we become more sunken into the mire of this culture and this, this general depression, literally and figuratively. And there's only one thing that gets us out. And that's World War II. Really, this is the time where the military industrialized complex first surfaces and gets all of almost all of the population working for it. So you think about this, these migrant workers, these people that are destitute, the people that had no future have another alternative. It's go see the world. We need soldiers. We are we are needing people to enlist. And just like that, it's a third, it's about it's basically every man Woman and child is going to be indoctrinated or, or industrialized into the United States military complex. The men are going off to war. The men are going to have a guaranteed wage to send home to their wives. And their wives and their children, in many cases, are working in the factories, building the ships, building the airplanes, working on victory gardens where they would grow their own food so that the rest of the crops of the United States were going to the troops, you know, um, doing, you know, uh, like canvassing the neighborhoods, getting silk to make parachutes for soldiers. It was everything was single mindedness, get through the war and get out. And because of that, because there's literally no available addicts at hand, and there's nobody who's got any free time for drugs and alcohol. You do see a bit of a drop in heroin use in World War II. And now everyone stops, holds their breaths, and sees what happens after World War II. And when these troops come back, America is on top. We are victorious. I still just love that newspaper clipping of the guy holding up a sign that says we win you know or the the sailor 
kissing the nurse, which couldn't happen today because you know, I'm sure somebody would sue for whatever. But I'm not going to get into it. I just I don't think we quite understand what kind of mindset the world was in during that period of time. And in my opinion, it's one of the few times you could say that good beat evil. So now these troops come home, no less destitute mentally than the World War I troops coming home. But they're coming back again during a period of economic surging. We see that everyone comes home and they got money and their wives have extra money because they were working in factories. And now the world takes that mechanized industrializing capability to work on planes and ships and applies it to cars and homes and neighborhoods and highways, right? And now suddenly everyone can afford a home and a car and a lifestyle. And because of that, we start to see that everybody's got money and everything looks great, right? Wrong. Because... (laughs) And and, and for a while it works, but it doesn't work for a lot of people. Remember, all of these vets are still coming back, and they have habits to kick. They've been injured. They've been mutilated. What about the soldier who has no arms? Have you seen the best? I think it's called The Best Years of Our Lives. It's a William Wyler movie, and it's such a movie ahead of its time and out of time just to watch it. But one of the soldiers comes back with no arms, and it's a real guy. It's a real guy. And he, uh, I mean, he, he, they're all flying home and he's lighting their cigarettes. He's got hooks and he's lighting their cigarettes and he's showing how you can light smokes off it. And he only lights two and then he burns it out. He goes, never light three on the same match. You know, that, that whole thing. Uh, insane, beautiful movie. Um, and it, it's one of those few movies that talks about the real situation that people had to deal with rather than the, the propaganda of, you know, peace, brother. It was tough. People came back and they did not have what everybody else had. You know, if you came home with all four arms and legs, indeed, you were alive. Uh, you were considered one of the fortunate ones. Um, and I, I still think about my grandfather who said when he flew his crew home, he was a B-24 bomber pilot. When he got to San Francisco Bay... And he saw the American flags for the first time. He said, every one of us, he's like, I hate to say it, but I mean, I don't, but we all started crying and hugging each other, man. He's like, you just don't know what that flag means until you see it on your own soil for the first time in four years. I couldn't imagine. He flew his crew home, by the way. Now, there's another part that occurs here where, yes, we're seeing an increase in people returning from the war and where there was a situation where everybody for a time during this war were considered equal. Now we get back and we think, is it going to stay this way? Well, what happens to the blacks that were fighting over there? What happens to the Negroes that were fighting over there, right? Yes, they were in their own separate battalions. And yes, the Nisai, right? The Japanese Americans that went and fought. Now what happens to them in the internment camp situation? How are we going to handle this? And a lot of things that happen are things start to kind of go back to normal. They start to go back to the old ways, particularly in the South. And you're starting to see, you know, and this is just, this is actually during Jim Crow, but 
separate but equal situation. And it's the children of this generation that people call the greatest generation. It's the children of them who are called the baby boomers who show up and start to say, wait a minute, this isn't okay. This isn't okay. This isn't cool. Now, I have such a love-hate relationship with the baby boomers because I think that uh, they meant well and they did fight against atrocity. But in a lot of ways, I guess I don't think they quite understood what the generation before them had to do. But in this way, I think that's why they picked up the baton to go fight for things like civil rights as this is occurring, it's occurring during this period of prosperity, right? You start to see more of this prosperous and, and um, willingness to look back on his, the history of our country, see the inequalities, and then again with this kind of progressive mindset, say, I want to experience that culture so that I know how to move forward and help that culture out or be a part of that. So we're in this together. So this interesting thing happens with like the beat poets who start to kind of stay on the fringe of society because they don't feel they're part of the greatest generation. You know, you, you got uh, Lenny Bruce or uh, E.E. E. Cummings or uh, and I always bring it back to people like this. I apologize because I was a B.A. I'm not a B.S. guys. Um, but you know, Kerouac, who would travel life on the road, and you start to see the use of drugs and the and the cultures below, you know, and, and trying to seriously experience this other part of society, just like in the 20s, right? Just like in the jazz era. Now you see these American musicians and British musicians starting to... Look into the old blues music, Eric Clapton and the Cream and, and the Stones and uh, the Who and of course, later Zeppelin, the Beatles even, uh, Savoy Brown, you name it, they were listening to it, right? They started to go back and listen to the old Robert Johnson stuff and the Blind Lemon Jefferson stuff and, and, and saying this is where it really was real. We want to make, make this kind of music. The British invasion brought back American blues rehashed with electric guitar. And when they started to really delve into that music, what did they start to find? Well, this was all built off of drug use as well. And now we see a reintroduction of drugs, of heavy drugs, of drugs in general at first, into late 50s and 60s culture. And it's an interesting thing to see that they first start off particularly, you know, kids. San Francisco is the spot, man, the Haight-Ashbury. And they start to listen to old jazz, and they start to listen to now 60s rock, progressive stuff, and they're smoking reefer. And then the psychedelic era blows up across the Haight, right, across San Francisco. It's a city of love. It's the place to be, to experience, to try the new, to, to be an avant-garde, to... to to be a, a, you know, a, a, what would you call it? A psychonaut. Something that's um, trying to find the limits of your brain and consciousness and reality and free love. Hey, I mean, what's the difference between, this is interesting, because I'm not sure those two generations got along, but what's the difference between the hippie chick and the flapper? 
both the same ideas, burning bras, to hell with man's rights, right? or to hell with man's rules. I'm doing it the way I want. Free love, man. Uh, and, and because of this, you see, of course, a giant explosion of creativity in music. But with it, indelibly, you have the drag-along chain and ball of drugs. So it's interesting. I, I talked to my dad about this when he was a fireman in San Francisco in the late 60s and early 70s. And, and he was actually kind of a part of the hate. He said, I never really, he couldn't, he didn't, he didn't really like smoking weed or anything, but I'm sure he was more there for the free love part of it. He's a good looking man, my father. So he would say, he said, it was interesting because I saw my generation of people first drinking out at night and we're listening to you know old 50s music and and it'd be like let's get a bottle and sit and play and listen to music and do like ho- uh, hoot nannies and play you know kingston trio stuff and that became more bob dylan which then became cream and 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 buffalo springfield and then you know weed shows up and now you're starting to see these people that were trying weed start to do mar- um they're doing mescaline they're doing acid he said, and then it was interesting because you could see from Bayview and San Francisco's, if you have to know the, literally the geography of this place, you could start to see heroin showing up. And he was working as a fireman at this point, And he would see heroin showing up as overdoses, street by street, coming down San Francisco streets coming from Bayview and working its way towards the hate. Because it would be hippies that would go out and try it and hang out over there. They'd find it. They'd do it. They'd overdose, right? And and so you'd see the curiosity to try a different drug, try a little bit heavier something, a, li- a little more true to the to the music, right? And he said, and it hit the hate. And suddenly when you started to see ODs on hate, you were seeing 5, 6, 12, 20 overdoses a night. And not only that, overdoses spread across the entire city. Once it hit that target audience, they spread it across the entire city. Not only that, there are hippies going on pilgrimages. When I was over in Afghanistan, that used to be one of the biggest, coolest, hippest cities in the world. This was a place where, because of the hippie influx, they would call it the Shangri-La Trail, and you would show up in Afghanistan, and they would have hash, which was legal, they had heroin, which was legal, or opium, and you would take this up through into Tibet. It was the thinking of the mythical city of Shangri-La was up in Tibet, but they were making these pilgrimages, right, through this whole area. Uh, and, and because of this, the hippie generation because of its its need to explore and experiment unknowingly also brought this drug physically and also the demand for the drug back to society back to the world and we see the backlash from the late 60s and the deaths of Joplin and Hendrix and Morrison um, to through the 70s and the fact that it was it was a period of the wave receding and the bodies lined up on shore and the fact that we knew this was not any better than it was 30 years ago or 30 years before that 
but now it's in every city. And we can't stop it. One of the good things that did arise from the 70s was the introduction of methadone clinics for treating chronic heroin use. Methadone, ironically, becomes what heroin was for morphine at the turn of the century. Now people are going to methadone clinics, they're getting a metered dose of the drug, which they take on a daily basis. And yes, it puts them into a fog, but at least they're not going out and skeeving or, you know, searching for another fix. It does last longer from what I've been told from heroin or uh, methadone addicts and the few documentaries I've seen on it. It's not as potent and it lasts longer. And so therefore, from what I can gather, they just stay on a more mellow level for a longer period of time. And albeit it's not a cure, but at least perhaps it's something out of that eddy, out of that horse latitude, right? Out of that Charybdis. Do you remember Silas and Charybdis in the Odyssey? The Charybdis is that whirlpool that goes down into oblivion that you don't want to get, if you get caught in your, you and your entire crew is lost, you know. It's the uh, Armagi Zarlak from Return of the Jedi, only in the water. And, and maybe methadone allows you to slowly paddle your way out, to maybe look towards the horizon and see some way of getting back on shore by not being a dead body. So perhaps methadone clinics do, do end up slowing down the epidemic of heroin in the U.S. in the 1970s. And ironically, the, the president that put that into an act an action was uh, President Nixon, who had some strict regulations on it, but he's the one that's responsible for doing that. But really what you see is, again, and... And I haven't talked about this before, but again in the 60s, the Vietnam War is bringing back soldiers that are injured and this time not treated very well by the people at home. So when you see these soldiers coming home, they are destroyed. And they have no, they have no homeland to come home to. So maybe in many ways the methadone clinics allow them some place to conquer their growing addictions, which if didn't start on the mainland, uh, many people say that it was introduced to them over in Vietnam. In fact, many people say that there was CIA cover-up of the drug being filtered back to the United States inside the caskets of the GI soldiers. I will leave that up to another podcast and people more intelligent than me to get into that subject. And this progresses through the 70s. And I really think the only thing that ironically drops heroin use in the late 70s into the 80s is the rise of cocaine and the new resurging of the U.S. economy in Wall Street uh, in the booming 80s. And the fact that they need to be more stimulated in order to operate. And therefore, a stimulant takes precedence over 
a barbiturate, or in this case, it's actually a narcotic. So heroin use falls by the wayside through the late 70s and early 80s, in 80s, and then something like crack occurs. And you see that the crack epidemic completely overshadows heroin. Crime rates quadruple. I've heard stories from medics that worked in that period, and they say you have zero idea just what the lifestyle was when I was working as an early medic. Um, we'd go on very easily eight or nine shootings um, a week, just me. And they never make the paper and nobody knows about them. But when you were working in places like San Francisco and Oakland and Richmond, they were happening every day, multiple shootings. Gang turfs were new. People are trying to establish land. This is just the way it goes. This is, this is people, I know it's something that people don't want to think about, but as soon as you do, you go, of course, that's how this is happening. And because of that, regulations on stimulants like cocaine and crack increase. So what happens in the early 90s? Heroin starts to show up again. All those coke-filled glam bands, you know. Um, let's say who, who Motley Crue, Poison. I don't know if they're on. But Guns and Roses, right? Um, you start to see the alternative bands and the, the alternative music and the alternative drug heroin showing up. So glam rock gets replaced with bands like Nirvana, and there's literally a band called Morphine. Uh, the Dandy Warhols. Portis Head, Massive Attack, Elliot Smith, who is one of my favorites, and it's tragically beautiful to listen to his music. And we see this giant increase in heroin again. In fact, like I say, it's called that in vogue or, you know, the couture of it. It becomes literally called heroin chic. And you see it popping up in modeling magazines, women that are waifs that have no fat on their bodies. This becomes cool again this becomes this kind of withered wasted look becomes the new fashion in the 90s culture there's uh in 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 pulp fiction when vincent vega goes to his heroin dealer's house he says well coke coke is as dead as well dead heroin's coming back in a big way remember that scene and he's like yeah you know i'll take the pepsi challenge with any heroin so it became this new, cool, hip thing to do. Um, and now we see it reintroduced into the culture. And shortly after that, what do we start to see throughout the 90s and the 2000s? Not only is heroin being used, but designer drugs and opioids or synthetically produced opiates start to become more used. And once again we get another long war. Soldiers are out, coming back with mental issues, pain, and they're being introduced to pain medications. Doctors at first are much more willing to use these pain medications for the patients and saying, no, we've noticed there's a drop in, in use and abuse of it now. Here, take these. We think we've conquered it by making things like fentanyl or hydrocodone or oxycodone. And I don't see that the potential is going to be there because it always is there. So as they give them to their patients and they see the rise in abuse of the drugs begin 
and in fact overdoses again, they begin to restrict the use from those people without giving them an effective alternative. And through the late 2000s, up until basically where we are now, we're seeing another surge of heroin use. Because those patients, just like what my brother said in the first episode, when I said, he said, why are you doing this podcast? And I said, because it's intriguing to me. I just want to know why they're using, why people still keep going back to this drug. And he said, because they're idiots, man. I said, yeah, I don't think he was. No, no, let me, they're not idiots. A lot of them are guys that are working as soldiers and they got hurt and now they're taking the drugs away from them. And now he's, now he's talking about the doctors and now they got to go out and they're forced to find it on the streets. And now they're starting to take heroin. And that's indeed what's happening. A lot of these people are turning to illegal means to get their drugs and they can find it because it's being produced illegally all around the world. I don't think there's any means of stopping epidemics like this. In fact, what dovetails with this is also the meth epidemic, which has a large rise in the early 2000s and and comes through here to about now. But there's always going to be that eddying horse latitude out there for people. And it's so easy to get sucked into it. Really, the only thing I can see is talking about it like this, finding additional means of aiding people with their addictions and recognizing that they're going to backslide. They're going to try it. They're going to keep circling inside that eddy. What we try and do is provide some life rope, some some way to show them the horizon. Otherwise, the alternative is down into the depths. And we can't have that. And And I think, yes, you put yourself in those situations, but I don't think most people know what they've done until it's too late. But I'm under the unique belief, can I say mostly unique, I always believe in a second chance for these people. And some of my favorite stories are of Miles Davis driving himself up to his father's ranch and sitting inside a room for three days, puking, uncontrollable diarrhea, and then coming out having kicked heroin. And sitting with his father at a gate watching horses run around. And first picking up his trumpet and fingering it again with sobered hands. I would have loved that kind of story for Philip Seymour Hoffman. I want redemption. I think we have too much tragedy, don't you? Remember I said before, if you know anyone that needs help, or you yourself are just curious on how to deal with some kind of drug or alcohol addiction, please call the help hotline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's help. 1-800-662-4357. If you got it in you, and you all do, use it. 
I love you all, and I'll talk to you next episode. Make you a brave man. I know.